Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's issue of Civil Discourse, hosted by Todd Furness. I'm Todd Furness, your host. As always, if you like the content, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. We're uh, eager to have as many people view this important content as is possible. We think it's it's important to have thoughtful, long-form conversations with people about uh, matters of consequence with people of substance, and Leon certainly falls into that category. So uh, thank you so much for being with us today. We My have pleasure. Leon Wisniewski and uh, Leon. Just for those who don't know, let's start with reminding people about your passion and how you got into this this uh, this yeah. morass of data. Sure. So so I used to work at a Blue Cross in in contracting and in fraud, waste, and abuse, where I had visibility into their claims data, and you could clearly see low cost care pathways in the data, and but. Well, unbeknownst to me was that this information could not be shared to the masses to make an informed decision. So you had all these people making blind and wasteful choices, causing financial harm to them for the simple reason they did not have information to make a decision. And, you know, when I socialized, you know, this, this information to management, you know, I was ignored. They, they didn't want to, um, discuss transparency and how to use the data in a population health capacity. And so that, that troubled me very much because it just, it was not only unethical, it was just indecent. And um, it just did not sit with my ethics to be quiet while somebody else gets hurt. And so that is who Leo is and what Health Cause Labs is about. It's about giving people information to make an informed decision. Very good. And so you started your company, you've been funding it yourself. Yes. And uh, it's a it's somewhere between a commercial via commercially viable uh, business and a passion project. It you're, is. you're working 27 hours a day. I and uh, you, you feel strongly about the subject matter, which is clear in not only the work that you do, but also in the posts that you make uh, that uh, <laughs> many of us follow. And if you don't know, you should follow Leo, Leo on uh, on LinkedIn. Um, because I think a lot of the comments you make are, are spot on and you, you do it in such a pleasantly unvarnished way that it's uh, easy to digest. It so, does get me in trouble sometimes. <laughs> but that's, that's part of the fun probably for you. It is. So uh, let's kind of go down to the next step. Uh, you've exposed all sorts of things in the, in the industry in terms of fraud, waste, and abuse. You've identified prices that are completely uh, out of control, um, wildly disparate, oftentimes in the same geography and the same network by same the same hospital. provider. Same hospital. Yeah. And so what has been the reaction in the marketplace thus far to what you're doing? So thank you. Um, this has been a crazy year for me. Not, you know, not only trying to, to clean up these files and bring a product to market, but what I'm discovering now is that we have another problem 
and that's just the industry middlemen who do not want to use the data. So the reaction has been, you know, very favorable, encouraging. This is great, but the my sales are not where I thought they would be, not because it's a bad product, but because the people, the middlemen, don't want to disrupt their 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 month, their, their paycheck, and and their clients, the carriers, and I'm, that's what I'm facing. It's, okay, so I want facing- I want to unpack that for a second because I want to I want everybody to really understand what's going on here. Because uh, this is vital and it's important and it goes to the heart of the unaffordability of healthcare issue. So when you say the middleman, you're talking about specifically brokers, I, and I you're am. talking and you're talking specifically also about carriers. Yes, but it's more, the- I've been more more about the brokers. I've had a lot of face to face conversations with brokers, um, and it's just this is great and you know you know, no, thank you. And it's just, it's, just, I'm, I'm shocked. And I'm somewhat amused that this person thinks they can manage medical costs without knowing the unit cost. And it's like, what planet are you on that you think you're doing a good job to your client when you don't have this information? So I, I in one turn, I kind of laugh at them internally. Um, but the other part, I'm really disappointed for the clients who they serve because they're not being serviced well. So let me let me challenge you a little bit on that. You said they're clients, and you're talking about the companies the, the to whom they employers. sell in, yeah, to whom they sell insurance, right? Yes. Um, okay. So I don't know how they think they're going to. Hold on, know, hold I, on for I, a second. Hold on ahead. for a second. Go ahead. Who pays their bill? It's the carriers. Right. So who do they really work for? The carriers. Right. So that's the problem right there. It is. is that the company believes wrongly that the guy or the girl, the, the person coming in to visit with them about their healthcare insurance costs is actually working for them. That is wrong. They don't. They work for the carrier. And so what's implicit in what they're saying to you is I can't do anything that would save money for the company that I'm selling this product to because it might upset the carrier for whom I actually work. Yes. Yes. And and I've had people tell me that, you know, when, when they move membership off of the carrier, they are, they are threatened that they'll lose their bonuses for the entire book of business. Like there is a, a retaliation. If a broker moves members off of a carrier's platform, Okay, so, so what, what, since, since uh, the Sherman Act, what do we call that? We call that antitrust violations. Yes. Right? So that's an antitrust problem, or maybe for the carriers, because that's an anti-competitive act that, um, and in most of, the, most of the major urban areas in the United States, as you well know and have documented, we have an oligopoly. We have the, what we call the BUCAs in the business, Blue Cross, United, uh, Cigna and uh, Aetna, who were the four largest payers, and they dominate most markets for the payment of services. So what that means is, is if you as a broker lose the ability to offer the services of one of those carriers, that means that your ability to make a living uh, is increasingly challenged. 
my hunch is, and what you're likely to next tell me is that if you lose your book of business with one, the others probably look over their shoulders and say, hey, wait a minute, this guy was a, was a Blue Cross person and now they're trying to come to me to do some stuff, but hey, I don't like what they just did to Blue Cross, so I'm not going to give them the ability to market my product. Well, I mean, it's part of that, but I think it's, it's the carrier threat. You move one more member off my platform and I'm gonna, you're not going to resell our services and you're not going to get your bonuses. You're going to cut them off. Right. And I feel that I also hear that with doctors. It's like so many want to get rid of the contracts and the provider abrasion and hoops they have to jump through, but they're afraid of the retaliation from their health system if they leave them. Like so I've read some doctors are fearful the hospital will terminate their admin privileges to their hospital to do surgeries should they you know cancel their contracts with the carriers so there's there is a this threat of retaliation if they want to you know get away from the scam and that's what we're dealing with yeah and as we've talked about in the past the best way to do this is really through direct payment Right. And if it just paid cash directly, first of all, it'd be cheaper. And second of all, you wouldn't have all this tomfoolery going on with regard to economic stakeholder interests being created. And then uh, they run the risk of being divested of those interests. And so you have all these competing interests that aren't in any way helping the patient. Yes. And most of my constructive and positive conversations have come with people who are engaging in the direct pay arena. You know, they, you know, they're going to say, hey, we're just going to screw the contracts. We're going to offer you cash, direct pay. You know, we're not looking to pay you. We're not looking to rip you off and pay you Medicaid rates. Let's find, you know, a happy medium that 140, 150% of Medicare. You know, you make your, you make your margins. I don't got to deal with the insurance companies and it's win-win. So most of my positive conversations have come from this population. Right. So we'll start. I'm going to kind of highlight a few things as we go through this conversation that are, I think, are really, really important. Thing number one is to all the CEOs and all the HR managers who ever get across this. Thing number one is brokers don't work for you. Brokers are not working in your best interest. Brokers are working for carriers. And as a result, they're paid by carriers and their economic alliances are tied to carriers. That's thing number one. Okay, so now we've seen some other things happen, and I'm sure you're keeping track of this. Uh, you know, United now is the largest employer of physicians uh, as a single company uh, through one of its subsidiaries. So, which raises the question, which is on the doctor side, as you just mentioned, if they break with an insurance company, their credentials to be able to perform at a particular hospital may be revoked as well. Uh, and so that's interesting because it sidesteps the credentialing committee which is normally based on competence and complication rates and goes straight to an economic issue. So big number. So thing number two, as we're going through is you got to understand what's really going on with the hospitals and the physicians you're working with, because the physicians may have uh, a pretty strong economic headwind if they try and do something different from what the insurance company wants. Right. So, so what I'm, I'm having a lot of positive conversations with states businesses group on health who understand that this barriers, which you just commented on and saying, we're just going to do a direct pay 
pay cash, maybe no contract at all, and just take the wind out of the sails of the, the middleman economy, as, as I call it. Right. So there, there's, a, there's a force that's going its own way. So, which brings us kind of to the, to the third element of the discussion, or another element of the discussion, which is how do you solve the problem with cash payment? So I, I was just looking at, and you're going to laugh at me for this because uh, I have a tiny little company and my premiums went up by 8.6%. There's no rationale for that. Uh, but I, and I've got an admittedly gold-plated plan. My premium is $3,000 a month for my wife and me. Okay, so I'm just doing the math. Okay, so three times 12 is $36,000 a year. Is there any possible way that I'm actually going to use $36,000 worth of medical services this year? Absolutely not. Is there any possible way that I'm going to use a fraction of that? I'd be hard pressed if I were doing cash pay to use 30% of that. So again, and I recognize that I'm, you know, put into a pool that spreads the risk of a bunch, bunch, across a bunch of different people. And I get all that, but I'm still looking at this and saying, this doesn't make a whole lot of walking around sense. No. So, the, you know, I think that, you know, that the medical sharing communities are going with price transparency. I think the medical sharing communities are going to, you know, take off like the, like the dot-com companies of the late nineties where it just, they're cheaper. It's, it's, they're all for protection for catastrophic claims and, and just nobody can afford $36,000 a year or even $28,000 a year. So the, the insurance industry, they have priced themselves out of the market. So the medical sharing communities are going to fill in that space. Well, the other thing that I, I think is interesting is the percentage of people who have access to uh, insurance through the companies for which they work don't elect it, right? So they just opt out. They say, I'm not going to do it. And so in some instances, it's more than 50% of the insured population or the population that should be insured under that company's plan don't opt in because they can't afford it even with the, the company. You're right. You're right. I mean, it's it just the price transparency is going to open up a whole new industry of lower cost alternatives. Uh, now, right. I'll, I'll, let me comment that I've been doing a lot of research on the Affordable Care Act and how, do you, how, does, how does a company survive by offering coverage and, and comply with the Affordable Care Act. And I'll, t- I'll tell you, I, I found this answer out through a lot of homework. So there's two penalties under the Affordable Care Act, Part A and Part B. Part A says you have to offer minimum essential coverages. Right. And that's we call like them the MEC plans. The MEC plans, thank you. That's like vaccine shots, um, behavioral health, access for behavioral health, immunizations, really cheap stuff. Um, that that's MEC. That's Part A, and then Part B is the plan has to be have the sixty percent minimum value compared to the average plans of the state, which includes major hospitalizations, and it has to have unlimited coverage. So, so you can't price something unlimited, which is why everything's so expensive. However, an employer only faces the Part B penalty when an employee goes out to the exchange buys a plan on their own and is eligible for subsidies. So if you were to offer a medical sharing community with a great MEC benefit, it's going to be cheaper for that employee to stay there than to say, no, I don't want it. I want to go buy an exchange product 
and get subsidies, then you get a penalty. So it's very hard to get penalized under the Part B when you're paying cash rates for the hospitals and you offer a, a, a good MEC coverage to keep them well. So this path is going to take off next year, definitely. So one of the things that's interesting, I just finished a, uh, a lunch meeting where I was talking to a buddy of mine and we were fashioning a plan that's going to actually save his client 40%. 40%. That's before the increase that was of the renewal. And that it's, it just goes to show you how much froth there is. And you know this is a completely different model. So I want to go back to one of the things we were talking briefly about any trust issues. And you may have seen the podcast I did with Senator Steve Daines. Uh, what's interesting about that is he's the one who signed, uh, he actually wrote and then uh, uh, sponsored along with uh, other senators from, in a bipartisan way. The law that now makes... Uh, insurance companies subject to federal antitrust laws. So since 1954, I believe it is, on the McGarren Act, insurance companies were not subject to federal antitrust laws. With Senator Steve, Steve Daines' law now passed and, and effective as of January 1 this year, that means that they're now subject to the antitrust laws, uh, which brings into sharp focus the stuff that you just mentioned, right? Which is the anti-competitive behavior that uh, these insurance companies are engaged in. Well, I'll mention something that, that uh, all this work I've done in this past year, the single thing that troubles me the most, a lot, by a mile, isn't that cash rates are cheaper than negotiate rates. It's that when you look at a hospital's payer mix, you'll see an insurance company charging different members different rates. You know, Santara in um, Virginia, who is garnishing wages and putting liens on people's homes for unpaid medical bills, we see that Aetna is charging exchange members $64,000 for a knee surgery, and they're charging the HMO population like $20,000. It's a $42,000 swing within Anthem for Santara at the same hospital. And when people purchase healthcare from an insurance company, they do so with the expectation that this insurance company is using its mass buying power to offer me the most favorable rates. But when we see they're chunking up the membership into who pays more for healthcare, that's a whole different level of unethics or corruption that nobody's ever seen before. And, and you know, we put Martha Stewart in jail for insider trading. She enriched herself on knowledge somebody else did not have, and, and she should get punished for it. But insurance companies, it's the same darn thing. They have information the other people don't have, and they saw a way to make profits out of their non-disclosure agreements. So it's the same thing in my book, and I hope, you know, there's a, there's a justice coming for the people who are paying more than they should for healthcare. Well, yeah, and that's a there's a long thread to pull there in terms sure of is. discussion. Um, but it's, you're you're spot on in terms of the fact that there's an asymmetry. I think it's fascinating and ironic for the terms to be used as first negotiated rate, which is a term used to re reference the amounts that have been negotiated by the insurance company, right? 
versus right. the cash price, which is code for the amount that the individual goes in and negotiates at the time of service. And what I think is, is fascinating about that is, you know, what you're saying is that the soccer mom who goes in and, and says, no, no, I don't think that's a good price. I like this one better. And here's my cash to show it. I'll pay you X. Uh, and, and instead of the negotiated rate, which has been done by a professional who's got, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years of experience ostensibly, who is ostensibly, again, underscore ostensibly, uh, better equipped to negotiate this rate than the soccer mom. And I'll give an example. I, I had a, uh, a marketing assistant who uh, needed a, an MRI. The MRI was going to be $3,200. The radiologist report to read the MRI was going to be $800. And uh, her deductible was $3,000. So she's paying the first $3,000. Yep. The, the insurance company is going to pay the next $1,000, right? So total cost of the MRI plus radiologist is $4,000. Her deductible is $3,000. And she said, hey, I, I read this guy Furnace's book. Uh, and he says, I can negotiate these prices. What's your cash price for this? Answer, $560. $562. Or, or you have insurance, so you can't use cash. So here's $3,000. Yeah. <laughs> $562 is what she paid. So right. she saved $2,438. And so just the cash price extended her deductible. And I, I've got a, you know, one of the things I always find interesting is, you know, the way that we've created these terms to really muddle what they really mean. So premium, what does premium mean? Premium should be characterized as the first amount that the customer, the consumer pays or the patient yes. pays. Yes. What, what is deductible? Deductible is the second amount that the customer pays or the patient pays. And what is a copay? Copay is the third amount that the patient pays. So until the patient has paid all three, the insurance company doesn't pay anything. That's so right. this idea that we're saving all this money by insurance is not, not correct. And I think what we've done is we've simply um, used fear, uncertainty, and doubt and some uh, anecdotal stuff to say, hey, you might get hit with a surprisingly unaffordable healthcare cost, and that bill is going to bankrupt you. That's the mantra that's gone on in the public narrative for a long time now, which means that people think they need insurance probably more than they do. Right. So let me let me comment on let me add something there on what you said that you know Marshall Allen wrote a book this year called Never Pay the First Bill. And and it was ways to fight the insurance industry, fight back. And he dug up this gem in there. It's called the open price term. It's part of the consumer protection laws that was started in like year 1810. It's been around forever. And it says the open price term says that when the price is not disclosed at the time of service, there's a there's a checkbox. Go down this. What happens is that if the buyer, if the seller doesn't disclose the price, then the buyer picks a price. We have price transparency. So the idea that you're going to get hit with a with a ridiculous bill that may bankrupt you is false. Because go back to my Centara example. So if the Centera fee schedule shows that the minimum rate for a knee surgery is $20,000. You should not pay more than $20,000 because that's the amount Centera defined as payment in full for this service. So there is absolutely consumer protection 
uh, guidelines that protect you from financial harm. So I don't want to hear I'm going to get hit with a surprise bill. It's going to bankrupt me. I must have insurance. No, you don't know the consumer protection laws, which is why you say that. So, and so I the think next, that's, so now I think we found our, our next bullet point, right? Which is con consumer protection laws pre uh, protect you against surprisingly un unaffordable hospital bills and other healthcare costs. Yes. And I feel that this is why many of the hospitals have still not posted their fee schedules like HCA, Dignity, Banner, Chai, Crisis, Texas Health, because they know once they post those prices, they can't charge whatever they want because now the consumer has a backstop to um, a ceiling as to how much to pay for healthcare. That is why hospitals have not yet posted their rates because they know their, scan, their gig is up with, when these numbers come out. Well, it also underscores the value of advocacy in this space because there's such an asymmetry or an imbalance in the understanding of this, all these different sundry laws and rules and regs and how to, how to negotiate and navigate your way through this morass. It, they've made, it's become so complicated, uh, I think intentionally so, that it's difficult for people to know what their rights are uh, and yes. they've been hearing how fearful they should be for such a long time. It's it's true. And I, I just, you know, I, I wish, you know, I am one um, solution in a very complicated puzzle. I need others. I need a, what I need is a megaphone. I need, I need to partner with somebody who has that megaphone, like a Mark Cuban, you know, who can just go over the swamp and do that advocacy and say, no, 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 that's wrong. This is right. And educate the masses. I need to partner with somebody who has that megaphone? Well, I'm doing my best. I got a big microphone right here. Well, great. So, if anybody's listening to this podcast and you feel you can help me educate the masses, please contact me. Very good. Well, thank you for that. Now, I want to turn to recent developments. You, there's a big announcement you have to make. Oh, this uh, is great. And I just want to hear about this. I want to be one of the first guys to have you on and and really yes. unpack this uh, groundbreaking stuff. So tell okay. me about what's going on. So we're bringing in a new co-founder. I won't name him yet. It'll come out in a few, a few weeks. Uh, he's from the pharmacy side of the industry. And what we're gonna do is we're going to crowdsource the independent pharmacies EDI 832 files. And what that means is that when a pharmacist buys drugs from a wholesaler, the wholesaler gives them a receipt um, for their purchase. And in that receipt, it shows the amount the wholesaler paid or sell, is selling that drug for. Right. So when we crowdsource um, public files, we go around the non-disclosure agreements and the gag clauses. So we're going to aggregate all these EDI files into my website where pharmacists and even employer groups It'll be free to them with an annual subscription. Can go in, you know, choose an NDC, a drug, and see. Oh, this aspirin cost, you know, two cents a pill. I shouldn't be paying sixty dollars for a thirty-day supply. So we're just going to offer this transparency, and in return for um, pharmacies who don't donate their EDI files to me, I am going to give them free access to their state's insurance and hospital data 
so that they can compete with CVS and Walgreens as far as they want to open up their own minute clinic. So we're going to do this bi-directional data share, which is going to benefit both of us um, and shed light on unit cost of this pharmacy, on pharmacy data. Okay, so um, I actually did one of my first ever agreements as a lawyer, uh, which was an EDI deal. So okay. this is 100 years ago when I was young and impetuous. But uh, the EDI stands for Electronic Data Interchange, and it's a uh, format, a tool for exchanging information in the payment context, correct? Yes. Okay, so what you're saying is that the EDI transmission or creates, as a byproduct of that exchange, a, a receipt. Yes. The receipt ha can be printed off and virtually or in reality, and then shared. Uh, the receipt would likely have to collect to the extent applicable, sales tax information. Or just sales, the, the cost of the drug. Maybe, I don't know about tax. Maybe is in there. I don't know. My point is it may collect sales tax information, which, which further fortifies this notion that it would be likely a public document. Oh, I see. Right? So, but it certainly would include the, the price uh, paid by the independent pharmacy and the units purchased. Yes. Right? So you can disaggregate ultimately down to a cost per pill. Yes. And so what my, my, the new co-founder tells me is that uh, there is no um, marketplace for wholesalers. So a pharmacist may buy, may know he's getting a great price on drug A, but he may be paying too much on drug B. He doesn't know how to shop with drug B. Um, so we're going to collect this information, put it in the easy to read table where they can just filter for their drug and see, oh, I'm gonna go here for drug A, over here for drug B, and, 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 we're, and we're hopefully we can bring this information if Mark Cuban wants to help me. Um, <laughs> we can help the consumer say, I shouldn't pay more than $2.60 for this 30-day supply of medication. I don't care Walgreens is charging me 60. I shouldn't pay more than $2.60. So it's about bringing this baseline to America to understand what is a reasonable cost for medication. Right. So when will that service be launched? When will you start uh, um, changing that bi-directionally or, or reciprocally? Yeah. So the, my, my guys in India are updating the website right now to, to move this, to collect this data and um, do this, do their programming. It's happening right now. But I certainly hope it'll be ready, you know, mid-January. So good. once it once it's there, um, so I, I have to. I'll be charging like I'm thinking I'm going to charge like pharmacists to donate data, thirty bucks a month, for access to the website, because it costs me money to um to uh, extract these EDI files. It's not free, and and if you don't um, donate data, I may charge a hundred bucks a month. And, and people who buy the hospital data will get this data for free. So it's a value added service to my product. Um, and then, you know, hopefully we can compete with the PBN. Once, once we collect enough EDI files, we will have a de facto fee schedule, right? And so once we have a fee schedule, now we can compete with the PBM and process claims. So it's just a whole separate pathway to, to bring competition to the healthcare industry. Very good. So when you compete with the PBM, what would you anticipate 
um, that looking like? So firstly, employer, well, employers or whoever can come into our, my website and, and see the, the reasonable cost for medication. And then I guess, you know, what we could do is once we have enough data, they could, you know, say, okay, I'm not going to pay more than $2.60 for this 30-day supply of medication A. So they can load that fee schedule into a TPA, okay? So rather than a pharmacist sending a claim to the PBM, they can send it to the TPA, and it's going to take money out of the healthcare system. Well, so it'll, it, take, it'll take a cost out of the system. It'll take cost uh, which, out of the system. Yeah, yes. which is good. The thing to just be mindful of is who owns many of the TPAs? Well, then there's independent TPAs. But once you load a fee schedule, you know, it's just a, it's just a machine that processes a claim. That's all a TPA is. No, no, I agree with that. But oftentimes they're owned by the carriers. Yes, we have to go to an independent TPA. Right. Um, but the employer groups... They'll make that decision. I'm just aggregating the data, how they want to you activate that data. That's their call. <laughs> I'm well, not doing the, that. The, the important thing here, and I think this is the next bullet point in our discussion, which is TPAs may not work for the company either, meaning they may not work for the, the purchaser of the insurance product. They may work for the carrier. Yes. Um, so, that, I mean, that's another co conversation we could have, but <laughs> I'm just... Well, I'm, kind of, I'm trying to point out the, the economic interests that stakeholders have, and because once you start saying to the TPA, hey, I'm, uh, here are the prices that I want you to pay, a TPA is essentially like an accounts payable function. And yes. the, historically, it's an if-then statement. If the, if the bill comes in, then you pay it. And so by having a schedule, what you're really saying is you're, enter, you're actually creating a whole new model that will further empower companies purchasing these products and services from the carrier, ultimately, where they can have more of, a, uh, of a, a bargaining force in the way that healthcare dollars are spent. And it's, it's powerful. It is. It is. So I'm excited about it. You know, it's, um, you know to, to change healthcare, the only way to change healthcare is to collect public information, you know, download files from web hospital websites, crowdsource EDI files, because if you request data from the PBM or the, or the insurance company, you're not either you're not going to get it or it's going to come with restrictions where you cannot use it to the maximum potential it has. So you, you have to download public information or crowdsource. It's the only way to, to offer you know, true market forces in healthcare. Or get it from the companies under ERISA because they, it's their data. Or, or, you know, go overseas and get it. I don't know, but you're not going to get information to compete against <laughs> the insurance companies from them. Or well, I think that, yeah, the, the, the real benefit that you're adding to the marketplace, which is, needs to be really highlighted, is that you're creating a great deal of information that empowers the end user to make better decisions, reduce costs, and this is good for everybody. I mean, what people don't understand is there's a direct correlation between what you're doing, Leo, and uh, not just the cost of care for an individual company and its employees, but ultimately should be reflected in Medicare and Medicaid, right? Because yes. what we, you know, if you look at the imbalance in the trust accounts, for example, for Medicare, you know, we're, we're in bad shape. Or if you look at the burden on states right now, I don't know if you've heard these statistics. I live in the great city of Dallas uh, here in Texas. 
Um, Parkland Hospital is our big county hospital. It's very famous, fantastic physicians, uh, probably one of the best places in the world to go to have a baby. Um, but uh, they bill $3 billion a year. They collect about $300 million a year. Right. And so like right here, like we have uncompensated care. I just laugh. It's just that is a joke. It's like you cannot say you cannot charge the moon and the stars. And if you didn't get paid the moon and the stars, call that uncompensated care. It ha your price has to be based on market forces to, to discover the price. Anything over that is pie in the sky and fiction and belongs in Disney World. There's well, no uncompensated and, care. And there's another piece to this, which is um, that uncompensated care or the care for indigent patients, those who theoretically can't pay or can't pay, I'm not trying to suggest that they can, um, is covered, may be covered under their financial assistance policies, which uh, are a function or can be a function of their not-for-profit status, especially. But most hospitals in the United States have financial assistance policies, and you can make, in many instances, up to four times the federal poverty limit and qualify for financial assistance, which is another way to avoid these, you know, what I call unsurprisingly uh, unaffordable right. hospital bills. I, I think, you know, what, what for me, like what was very striking during the lockdown uh, of March and April 2020 was we saw hospitals, um, their budgets cratered because they lost so much money on elective surgeries. Exactly right. So most of your medical spend is in elective surgeries. So in the Parkland Hospital, if you're in Dallas, you don't if, if you have an elective surgery, you don't have to go to Parkland. You can look at Health Cost Labs, look at find another hospital in Dallas that does your treatment and go there. And so most of your money is in elective procedures. So we can absolutely reduce the cost of healthcare and get rid of this ridiculous word of uncompensated care when hospitals uh, offer prices that are based on supply and demand. Right, right. And the, the point that I make in my book, and the reason I call my book The 60% Solution is because if we, can cons if we can create and reinforce this consumer demand to force down prices through good information exchange uh, and transparency, that it helps 100% of America. Yes, I mean, right now, it's the middlemen who are consuming all the cost, all the cost reductions aren't being transferred to the doctors and hospitals. They're being comp, they're being gobbled up by the middlemen who, you know, are just creating abrasion and, and jacking up their administration fees. It's ridiculous. Well, and if you look at the loss ratios and how they've changed, you know, it used to be a long time ago, 94%, and now it's down to what, 65% or so? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not uh, what it once was. So, Leah, what's next on your horizon? You're looking at the PBM thing. I mean, at the uh, just completely disrupting the supply chain for pharmacies um, in a good way, meaning you're going to provide a much more price transparency. What I also see this is um, a theme running through your passion is, you know, sticking up for the little guy uh, and yes. kind of being helping David fight Goliath. Uh, so implicit in what you're saying is that you're going to help independent pharmacies compete against CVS and Walgreens, as you kind of mentioned earlier, explicitly. But uh, I think the power of this is, is really going to be um, significant. And I think it's going to help a lot of local communities 
who want to go to an independent uh, pharmacy because they feel like they get better attention and better care. You know, it's kind of like going to a banker. A lot of people would still like walking into a branch and having the teller actually know their name. Right. Uh, it's like going into a pharmacy, an independent pharmacy, more often than not, when you can say, hey, you know, my name is Leo. I, I need yes. you know, this, this med. And actually, you know, I saw it like I hear on you know commercials or wherever that pharmacists are most of the time the first the patient's first um, contact point in their care pathway. Yeah. Because when they're sick, they don't go to the hospital or doctor; they go to a pharmacist. What medicine can I buy to to heal me? Right. And so, if the pharmacist has this information, you know they can help them the the patients more financially should they need to refer them to a clinician. So it's absolutely going to help them. And so also coming down in 2022, the insurance companies have to post their files. So I will be canvassing the nation, you know, downloading these guys and, and loading them into my website. So we're busy. We're very, we're very, very busy here, but I, you know, I, I'm up against the, the brokers who aren't acting on the data. And what's needed is the employer groups, the fiduciaries, to go around them to make their own decisions for their workforce. That's what has to happen. So another way to think of this may be to say, what would happen if um, somebody like a Marsh came to you and said... Who's Marsh? Marsh McLennan. Oh, the broker. The broker. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry. Uh, and they said, "Hey, we want to, we want to, we believe in your cause, and we want to, we want to do exactly what you're saying, um, and we want to adopt your information, and we want to compete more aggressively." What would happen there? I would sell my data. I mean, I, I'm not signing any ex exclusivity deals. I mean, I, you know, and I, and I feel that the first big brokerage firm who embraces this data is going to have product domination. Because you, you know, two brokers cannot go into an employer's office, one with the transparency information, the other without it, and lose the account. Because if you don't have this, you are not relevant. And so I think the brokers who are just have the courage to, to walk away from their bonuses and, and you know, embrace this data and help their clients, the employers, control their costs, they're the ones who are going to be successful in the new healthcare economy. So, or uh, they're going to be left behind if they're not, right? Yes, there will not be a chair for everybody when the music stops. So this is the ultimate in first mover advantage. It is, it is. And, I, and that's why I'm like stunned when brokers are not acting on this data. Like, do you not know you're going to be displaced very soon? I can't, I can't, I can't help them. I can't bring them. I can't make them drink the water. <laughs> I understand. So um, the, the next bullet point, I guess, is that one, which is brokers who don't embrace the changing model and information transparency are going to be left behind likely without gainful employment in the near term. No, no. And I, I you know, I, I am shocked when they say to me, how do I use this data? And I'm thinking to myself, if I need to tell you how to use this data, you're in the wrong industry. Because I meet other brokers. I have one in Indiana who's like, you know, Tom Brady. He's, he's awesome. 
and he's he's throwing darts at, at everybody because he knows how to use his data to to arrest the the cost of inflation. And I love him. Um, we need more of him. But the people who are not acting on his data, they will be displaced. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. And I think that's kind of one of the powers of the web. Ultimately, it's all about the democratization of information, making sure it's available to you know, anybody who wants to take a look for it. And that's increasingly, increasingly the case. So we just got to get the message out, whether it's through shows like this or, uh, or other vehicles. Uh, right. We and, just got to get the information out. And I feel that my data, it's cheap. My data is cheap. I'm not charging enough money for it. But I sell it by the state. So whether, whatever you're in, if you're in Texas, I divided Texas into four parts. So you can only buy your north, you know, the Panhandle or Central Texas. So you can afford just to buy the data that's necessary to your in your own market. Um, it's not expensive. It's an ER visit. Um, so don't tell me you can't afford it because it's an ER visit. You can't afford it. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning that the <clears throat> the broker can afford it or the or the company can afford it. Yeah, their employer can afford it. And, and you know, they should be buying it because they should be empowering their workforce to be productive in this new economy. And the ones who don't, you know, who are, who are held hostage, somebody tells me, you know, bonuses to the broker, they used to be an incentive to bring business to the carrier. And now they're a noose. Now the broker cannot leave, take membership from that carrier because they'll lose their bonus. So brokers they they got to like look in the mirror and say who do i want to be so i've got an idea for you go ahead are you sitting down i am what would happen if a county purchased your data and made it available to the residents of its county yes yes i and i, I thought that um i have to think about how i'm going to price that because um, you know, because you are redistributing my my work. Yeah. So I have to figure out if you're going to redistribute the, the work, I have to jack up my cost because it's I gotta I gotta figure out how to price my data if you're going to redistribute it. But I absolutely believe that the best thing a county a city could do for its citizens is to buy this data put up a built-in bulletin board of, you know, the top 10 codes in this, you know, mammograms, colonoscopies, ER visits, and just inform, just inform. Or if, if I can meet a Mark Cuban who wants to you know, buy my data, put into a mobile app and let's, you know, make it free, let's do it. But it's, it's, it's not free for me to procure. So right. it, it, I can't do it for free. No, no, no. No one would expect you to. And maybe Mark Cuban will hear my podcast. I'll, I'll make sure that it gets his way. I'll send a special note to him. Thank you. Uh, I, I don't know Mr. Cuban, but uh, we have friends in common. So I'll see if I can get it to him. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, Leo, thanks so much. You know, and for those who, know, who know, didn't notice this, I, I called Leo Leon at the beginning because he's Leon, but he also likes Leo. So Leo's fine. I'm going to call him Leo. Leo, thank you so much for your time today. It's wonderful, as always, to chat with you. Uh, and uh, I encourage everybody that has an interest to go learn more about uh, Leo. And again, tie to LinkedIn, uh, or alternatively, we'll have the contact details at the bottom of this uh, podcast. So Leo, thank you so much. I love talking to you, and I'll talk to you again soon.
All right, thank you. Bye, Todd. Cheers. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.